I should say what I'm going to talk about tonight is out of a it was part of a book uh, on the ethics of cyber of cyber security, um, which I'm writing with a computer scientist by the name of Terry Bossemeyer. Uh, Terry unfortunately can't be here. He's the man who knows about all the technical details. So any hard questions that I can't answer inevitably would be ones that he would have answered if he if he'd been here. Um, but nevertheless, um, I have to take full responsibility for what I'm about to say. Um, well, I did get some assistance from Terry for this particular presentation. Okay, so um, I'll just quickly run through what I'm going to, the structure of the presentation, so you know roughly what's in store for you. Um, it's in sort of four parts. Um, depending on time, I may have to um, traverse some of these parts more quickly than might otherwise be desirable. Uh, the first part is basically looking at what the nature of the problem in this area is, because I think it's a kind of collection of sort of set of complex set of problems. Um, secondly, I'm going to define. Um, the three key notions, hate, uh, fake news, hate speech, and, proper, and political propaganda. It's political propaganda that's my focus, and I take it that fake news and hate speech are uh, typically components of political propaganda. Um, I won't spend too much time on these definitions since um, it's a sort of philosophical chestnut kind of area. Um, in part C, the third part, I'll talk about how the right to freedom of communication is to be understood, because uh, I, I think the, the dominant tradition in philosophy, at least in the analytic world, is uh, derived from, from Mill, um, and I'm, I don't want to divert too much from Mill, but I think that we need a slightly more expansive uh, notion of freedom of communication. And of course, the key problem is that on the one hand, we want to give a lot of weight to the moral right of freedom of communication. We want to allow people to, uh, to express themselves and so on. But on the other hand, we've got this problem because a whole lot of people are abusing that right, uh, giving us hate speech, giving us fake news um, and spouting propaganda uh, and so we want to restrict that, but how do we, how do we square the circle? Okay, um, so I'll talk a little bit about the, the notion of, uh, relevant notion of freedom of communication. Then in part D, I'm going to try and say thing, some things about how we could go about countering political uh, propaganda whilst in doing so respecting, hopefully, this right to freedom of communication, but at least having some uh, impact on reducing the amount of uh, fake news, hate speech and, uh, and political propaganda. And a particular thing to keep in mind here is, if you see that on the board there under D1, is um, the role of what I refer to as epistemic institutions. This is uh, a little philosophical term of art, the notion of epistemic, but it basically just means institutions concerned with knowledge. Um, so if one thinks of schools, universities, but also uh, the press, for example, they are concerned to investigate matters, um, to figure out what's actually going on out there. But also, um, of course, <coughs> parliaments and committee, parliamentary committees, because it ought to be their business to try to think through what would be the best policies, uh, helping themselves, of course, to expert advice, uh, but they should be, as it were, deliberative bodies and therefore, to that extent, uh, epistemic in, in, in my sense. So it's a fairly broad-ranging notion of, of epistemic that I have in mind. Okay, um, so part A is sort of unpacking the problem. Okay, so putting things somewhat simplistically, um, what we've had in, in recent times is the development of a whole range of social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, etc., and they're now used by literally billions of communicators worldwide as are related uh, tech uh, developments such in the 
in the ITC sphere, such as uh, Google and so on. Um, and the advent of these uh, of these tech tech giants and the and the underpinning technology uh, has, of course, been uh, remarkable in terms of the unprecedented flows of information, the capacity to, to find out things, but also in terms of um, the, the capacity of people to exercise um, their right to communicate with one another. What is of particular interest to me is the right to, to communicate not simply with anyone on the internet or with your friends on Facebook or something. What I'm interested in is because I'm interested in um, political uh, propaganda, I'm interested in the moral right to public communication, public communication. Um, and by public communication, I don't just mean, as it were, your private communications to your friends. Um, there are two features of public communication I would draw attention to. The notion is rather more complex than, than this, but there are two features that I think are worth drawing attention to. First of all, um, the message communicated becomes a message that goes to and is intended to go to a large number of people, but each of those, each of those persons who is communicated to knows that a whole lot of other people have been communicated to. Uh, so it's not just that you've been communicated with this, to, by that you've grasped this message and someone else has grasped this message. It's that we all know that we've all grasped this message. So there's a uh, there's that dimension to it, that, which is sometimes referred to as uh, in the literature as common knowledge, which is uh, I know that something, you know that something, I know that you know that something, and so on and so forth. Um, the other feature of this. Um, what I'm calling public communication, I just draw attention to, is that it, to say that it's public communication doesn't simply mean it's in the public domain in the sense that, in principle, you could go and access it. That is, you know, so there might be, there's a lot of information in the public records that, in principle, is in the public domain, but no one ever bothers to look at it. Um, so I'm looking at public communication, I'm thinking of public communication in the sense of, uh, of, messi of messages and information out there that's, that's, as they say, visible, highly, pretty highly visible. So we're all kind of aware of it. It's not just a question of the capacity to access it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, um, in addition to this uh, incre increase in our capacity to, to come to know things and to communicate, there's also been an exponential increase in um, the topic of this talk, namely hate speech fake news and political propaganda. Um, and, as a, and relatedly, there's been um, an, an considerable empowerment of extremist political groups, bearing in mind I'm interested in political uh, propaganda, notably groups like Islamic State and so on. Um, and also the capacity, um, it has enabled uh, various political actors to intervene in uh, democratic processes. And one thinks here of um, the Cambridge, Cambridge Analytic thing, uh, also the interventions in relation to Brexit, but more recently in the European elections. Um, these, these, the capacity to intervene has been facilitated by, um, uh, not only by the internet obviously, but by uh, social media and by some of these uh, AI techniques, uh, uh, machine learning, for example. And if you think of a particular example of hate speech that's often drawn attention to, this is the, uh, the Facebook hate speech emanating from Myanmar military uh, in relation to the Rohingya in Burma, in Myanmar, which uh, evidently led to or, or was um, facilitated uh, the, the murder of many of those individuals. Okay, so... If we come back to this notion of public communication and a kind of sphere of public communication, and I suppose the paradigm that people sometimes have in mind, or at least people um, who've studied the history of Western uh, civilization, or history of Western philosophy or whatever, they think of Athens and the Forum. And uh, you know, there's a relatively small number of people who are citizens 
Uh, they were only males, they had to be aristocrats and so on and so forth. But there was a small group of them and they could all sit around the forum and they could talk to one another and everyone had a chance to speak and so on. And so you had this kind of, this notion of public communication such that everyone could speak as it were, at least in, 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 uh, in theory, if not in practice, to pretty much everyone else. Um, they could publicly communicate, there was a public space. So one of the things that seems to have happened that insofar as we've had a public space, in that sense, a public sphere, um, at least a national, say if we take the UK, a, a kind of public uh, sphere created to some extent by organisations like the BBC, where most people in the UK uh, aware of certain developments, so they get everyone gets the same, roughly speaking, the same news and so on, uh, and knows what's going on. That has been, or at least that was uh, formerly the case to, to a considerable extent. That's been undermined to some extent by these new developments. So there's been a kind of splitting or fragmentation of this public sphere, and you've got a whole range of different. Uh, audiences that are, that are focused on other members of their narrow audience uh, and don't necessarily uh, get the same news or interest in the same things as members of some other audience. Um, so you've got a development um, or at least the, 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 the considerable increase in so-called narrowcast versus broadcast communications. And to some extent, if we look at the international sphere in the world as it's come to be with globalisation, it's clear that there are a whole range of common problems that we all, as sort of members of the human race, need to know something about. One thinks of climate change and so on. Um, so one would, one would have thought we would want a kind of, as it were, a sort of global public sphere of communication to, so that we can think about and, and be informed about these uh, problems that we confront uh, collectively as, as humans. But unfortunately, there's been a kind of, um, a kind of balkanization, if you like, in relation to um, the public, the, as it were, the global public sphere, partly because you've got some uh, nation states such as, uh, say, China and Russia, who want to um, uh, slow down or, or, or um, uh, censor certain sorts of information. They don't want. Chinese people have access, for example, to websites outside China. Um, the Russians, again, are, are looking at, at doing things in this space. So there's a kind of fragmentation, balkanization going on in terms of the, as it were, the international public sphere. Um, and so the upshot of this is that um, perhaps somewhat paradoxically, uh, the to the important development that seems to have arisen as a consequence of social media, the internet and so on, is that the pre-existing public spheres of communication have been to some extent uh, sort of splintered and fragmented. Um, and the, what one might have expected, namely the development of a, of a, of a global uh, sphere of public communication has uh, been uh, much less than one might have thought and certainly less than might, one might think would be desirable. Okay, now, aside from this notion of a public sphere of communication and the idea of uh, people having rights to communicate uh, to the public, as opposed to simply being able to communicate with their friends or in, in, in interpersonal communication, um, these, this, uh, the maintenance of of uh, public communication, uh, if it's if it's to work uh, and succeed and uh, and be a um, a development for the good of uh, humanity or the good of nation states or for the good of organisations, is it will need to be communication which is compliant with various uh, epistemic and moral norms. In other words, uh, that is regularities and behaviour that people are committed to. So, for example, if you take a simple case of uh, uh, the norm of aiming at the truth, of trying to tell the truth, this is a pretty fundamental norm because if, it's, if, we, if, if all of us uh, were to breach this norm, if we were all to say, well, I'm not going to bother telling the truth, and you said, decided you weren't going to bother telling the truth, uh, communication would, would quickly start to, to break down because I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust you to tell the truth, you wouldn't trust me to tell the truth. 
Um, and so these norms are, are obviously uh, of, of great importance. Other kinds of norms that have developed which are under pressure um, would be norms like you, the, the norm that you, you don't defame people, you don't go around trashing people and saying um, false things about them. Uh, and of course there are laws about, there's a body of law development in relation to this, but um, the, in the case of a sort of unregulated or um, relatively unregulated internet, you can get away with a lot of the things that you wouldn't, be able to, nor, uh, wouldn't have been able to get away with uh, previously. Another kind of norm is in relation to um, the distinction between uh, factual or truth aiming or uh, uh, communication which is concerned with how things are um, as opposed to mere entertainment. Uh, and we, we, we think that's an important distinction that we want to hold on to. And when someone says something, we want to know, well, are you, are you saying something because you, you believe this to be true um, or, or are you just trying to have fun or is, is this a silly, silly entertaining claim? And that distinction between truth aiming on the one hand and entertainment on the other um, seems to have been coming under increasing pressure. It was coming under pressure before uh, with phenomena like infotainment, but it's becoming, uh, it's, it's coming under greater pressure. Okay, so um, it's very important that we attend to these epistemic and moral norms of communication um, and the the lack of compliance with them is very problematic in terms of the quality of, uh, of public communication. There are two um, general ways in which we try to ensure compliance with these norms. One way is to have laws, enforceable laws and regulations for the more serious breaches, uh, laws against defamation, laws against um, incitement to violence and so on. Um, but those uh, laws and regulations in and of themselves are not going to be sufficient. Uh, we also need people to have uh, collectively attitudes that, of respect for those norms. They know what the norms are, they think they're important and they um, will express disapproval and pull people up um, if and when they breach those, those norms. And of course, um, if you've got uh, the, the, the greater the amount of non-compliance, the weaker those norms become. If you've got enough people disobeying the laws, enough people just give up on telling the truth, oh well, you know, he doesn't tell the truth, I'm going to tell the truth, no, it doesn't really matter, and so on, then the norm starts to be undermined. And of course, if you have state actors deliberately, such as um, uh, say uh, Russia in relation to various matters or uh, to take a, 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 an example nearer to home, if you've got say the American president who's quite happy to tell lies and put about uh, say false things about people willy-nilly, then this is very unhelpful in terms of uh, maintenance of these, uh, these norms, these epistemic and moral norms. Okay, so uh, coming to the end of this section, um, I said earlier that I thought there wasn't just a simple problem of um, freedom of communication versus uh, banning or prohibiting hate speech, fake news uh, and propaganda. Um, so perhaps now I can draw your attention to a sort of set of different problems that, that uh, have emerged um, in the process of, uh, of this discussion. So one thing we've got to do is figure out, well, what actually is the difference between um, politically motivated uh, f fake news and, and, and other news that may be false, for example, but isn't, uh, isn't, isn't necessarily fake news. Um, what is the difference between propaganda and uh, political claims that may be uh, motivated by, by political interest, but n nevertheless we might want to say they're not actually propaganda. So there's a, there's a range of questions in that space. Another kind of question is, uh, that we've touched on is, what is the nature and extent of the moral right of freedom of communication? Where's the, where does the right to freedom of motion stop uh, and restrictions in relation to what one can say start? Um, Yet another kind of ethical, this is a kind of ethical uh, principle uh, question would be 
what are the kinds of principles we, knew, we need to use when we, if we're going to regulate um, uh, content in, in cyberspace. So we, are we going to help ourselves to principle of necessity, proportionality? Uh, Facebook, for example, when it decides that uh, it wants, it, it, it thinks that um, certain material should be taken down, helps itself to community standards. And of course, censors, people who censor uh, communications have always helped themselves to community standards. Uh, but the question then arises, what are the, commu what are the community standards and which community ought to be the one that we ought to be um, referencing when we say that this does or doesn't meet community standards. Um, another kind of que set, of, set of questions concerns what ought to, who ought to decide these questions. So it's one thing to say we've decided what the definition of fake news, we decided we want to make it illegal, but then there's the question as who, who gets to decide uh, what, what is or isn't fake news. At the moment, for example, some of the big tech companies themselves, Facebook, uh, making a lot of those decisions. Is this, is this uh, the way we should be going? Are they the right, um, the right uh, institutional actors to be making those sorts of decisions? And, and then finally, there's a whole range of questions to do with how, how are we going to respond to this? How are we going to combat this? Um, presumably, we want to reduce hate speech, we want to reduce fake news um, and political propaganda. But what are we going to do to reduce it? And a critical question there is, what are we going to do? What policies are we going to put in place? What regulations are we going to introduce uh, consistent with liberal democratic principles? Because it may be that we can, we can reduce a lot of these things, but in so doing, uh, undermine uh, principles we take to be constitutive of uh, liberal democracy. <coughs> Okay, so part B, um, I might skim through part B reasonably quickly. It's a sort of a lot of definitions. Um, so fake news, of course, is news. It's, so it's not simply things that are false. It's something that is in the public, um, in the public sphere, as, as I indicated earlier. Um, it suggests to you that it's, um, it's news that is false, and it's news that is not believed by the originator. So it might be, um, it might not be disbelieved by the originator, but as long as the originator doesn't think it's, uh, doesn't believe it, then I suggest that uh, it's, uh, that is a condition for it being fake news. But the key condition I want to draw your attention to is that fake news uh, purports to be true. That is, it presents itself as being true. Um, and that's quite, quite an important uh, defining condition, I suggest, of fake news. Fake news is, of course, um, problematic uh, since a lot of it's false or all of it's false, uh, but it's likely to be believed by, by many people. That's going to be a problem. And it has a lot of uh, potentially bad political consequences, some of which I mentioned earlier. What about political hate speech? Well, uh, political hate speech has been actually quite a, a difficult concept to define and there's a lot of differences of opinion uh, in different di jurisdictions about what it is and whether or not it would be banned and so on and so forth. Um, I'd suggest to you that it's, it's, it's speech that is intended to incite hatred against some group and that it has a reasonable chance of inciting hatred even if it doesn't actually do so. Um, and in the case of, if it's political hate speech, it'll have as a, a, an ultimate political purpose. But a critical component of uh, hate speech, as I would understand it, is that um, the truth of what's said in the hate speech, in the hate speech, even if it ha even if it does have um, some truthful content, that it's not the truth that's of interest to the to the speaker of hate speech. Um, the, the, the interest is in, um, is in inciting, interest, in, inciting hatred. So that's the, that's the motive. Um, okay, um, and again, it's obviously problematic. It's likely to be false and it's harmful, as we saw to various groups in the case of the Rohingya in Burma and so on. 
It also has some other characteristics. Um, for example, it's likely to generate uh, conflict um, and it undermines an important liberal democratic value, namely uh, fraternity, which people often don't uh, think about these days. They think of freedom, they think of equality, but fraternity, um, the sense in which uh, a political community has to uh, work together, uh, respect one another in relation to uh, moving forward to pursue policies that are for the common good, uh, is obviously very unhelpful in relation to that. And of course, uh, fake news, hate speech and cyber space um, have been particularly uh, harmful given the communicative reach of the internet, the communicative reach of the internet and the power of uh, these social media platforms. Okay, what about political propaganda? Well, political propaganda is, I suggest, public communication in the service of a political ideology. What is political ideology? Um, I think here it's important to hold on to a distinction between uh, political ideology and systems of political ideas. The two things are often collapsed and people start talking about a political set of political ideas as ideology. Um, I think it's important to resist that. Um, like political ideas, um, ideology is a structured set of beliefs and assumptions um, uh, and it serves uh, like political ideas, political purposes. But I think the critical difference is um, that ideology only exists because it serves political, a political purpose and not because, um, as it were, the world or reality, the social, economic, legal, whatever reality is as the ideology says it is. So it's not, ideology is not um, motivated by truth, it's motivated purely by political purpose. And of course, in the current uh, environment in the cyber world, um, political ideology has um, been uh, able to rely on the power of the internet and social media uh, in harness with a lot of uh, psychologically based manipulative marketing techniques uh, to great effect, as for example is evident in um, the Cambridge Analytica scandal mentioned earlier. Okay, so part C, um, I've got to go through this reasonably quickly as well to get to part D. Um, one of the points about uh, the right to public communication in a mass society is that it's kind of necessarily indirect. Because the society is so, there's so many people, um, it's something of an illusion to think that everyone can communicate with everyone else. There's just too many people. Um, so what's historically happened is that there's a kind of uh, p people's communication with, other, with one another is mediated by various institutions including notably the press, print and TV and so on. Um, now with the advent of social media and the internet there's now this capacity to engage in direct public communication uh, with everyone, as, as uh, for example, um, uh, Trump, but a lot of other ordinary people do. Um, and this has created the, I would suggest, the kind of illusion that we can now return to the, this kind of image, as I mentioned earlier, of the Athenian sort of forum where we're all sitting around and we can all talk to one another um, because, in principle, any of us can reach anyone else directly. But I think this is an illusion uh, because there's just far too many people. And so, in actual fact, uh, if, you, if you take, for example, Trump's got apparently three million or so uh, members of his audience, he can regularly and does regularly communicate with all three million, uh, and some of the others, some of the members of that three million audience could communicate and, and do communicate occasionally to the total of the three million, but the three, not every one of that three million can possibly communicate to all the other three million. So. Um, it's something of an illusion to think that we've, as it were, overcome through these, uh, through social media and, and, and the internet, that fundamental problem that confronts um, uh, mass societies, although it has certainly extended the capacity to communicate, including to directly communicate on the, uh, for, for some minority. Here we, I think we need to distinguish between the right to communicate and the right to be a follower of communications. 
Uh, everyone can be a right, can receive the communications of Trump, but, but few can actually be the communicator. Okay, so what is this right to public communication? What has it actually been reduced to in, in the contemporary setting? Well, I suggest that the, the right to public communication, which we think is an individual right that I have to communicate to the public at large, it's a right that you have to communicate to the public at large, and so on. We think it's a right everyone has. I suggest that um, that right, and I'm talking now about public political communication, has in effect been reduced to the following. It's not so much a right as an opportunity to compete with others for a public audience. So you don't have a right to communicate everyone. You do have an opportunity to compete with a whole lot of other people for a large audience. Um, but unfortunately, when you compete uh, with others uh, to communicate with a large audience, uh, you do so under conditions of unfair competition because you don't have the resources, the wherewithal that a lot of organisations or people that are backed by organisations have to collect a whole lot of data, to use machine learning techniques, and so on and so to refine your message and, and so on and so forth. So it's targeted to certain people and so on. So unfortunately for you and for me, you're competing under conditions of unfair competition. A third point, um, which I've already uh, touched on, is that unfortunately uh, the norms governing this communication um, uh, are, are frequently flouted, they're, they're, they're frequently not complied with, and the, the space of public communication is much less regulated, both in terms of laws and regulations, but also in terms of um, uh, ordinary social attitudes uh, than was the case uh, before. Um, and in exercising or trying to exercise your your um, opportunity to compete with other uh, audiences in conditions of unfair competition in which norms governing communication are flouted, uh, this whole process is um, facilitated by the social media platforms on which, uh, which you use to make your communications um, and those platforms, um, far from being, as it were, entirely neutral platforms that are only interested in making sure that everyone um, has a fair shot at communicating whatever it is that they want to communicate, um, are actually interested in ensuring that they make the most money uh, and drive audiences uh, to that material which is going to make them more money. Um, so the, the idea isn't that uh, they're going to uh, going to adjudicate matters, in a, adjudicate things in a manner in which uh, the most important political information or the most truthful inf or the most accurate political information is gained by the greatest number of people. Rather, what they're interested in is uh, ensuring that the kind of um, material that's pumped around maximises uh, their cash flow. So that isn't very helpful either in terms of uh, the quality uh, and the, the, the um, compliance with, with moral and epistemic norms. Okay, so if that's the general situation, the specific problem, let me remind you again, is on the one hand we've got political matter to fake news, hate speech and so on, which is uh, sort of exponentially developed, so there's a huge amount of it out there. But on the other hand, which is creating a lot of problems, uh, on the other hand, we have, as I say, this, uh, this uh, important uh, right to freely communicate. So what I want to do now is, is take a little bit of a step back from this right to freely communicate. So the first thing, I, when people think about their right to communicate, they think of an individual right to communicate that I have to you, you and you have to me and so on. I've suggested that that's not quite right, that what you've actually got, if you're talking about public communication, uh, is a right, because you can't actually communicate with everyone and everyone can't actually communicate with you, it's more like you've got a right um, to, uh, if you've got a right, you've certainly got an opportunity to compete with others to get your communication to a larger audience. So what is the, but what is the sort of fundamental right that we're interested 
herein in protecting? What What's the important right that um, we want to make sure is, uh, if not uh, if not uh, entirely um, respected, is at least uh, respected to a considerable amount of time, and is and is uh, a right that um, feasibly could be respected. Um, well, the right that I think we need in this space is something like something like this. Um, and I'll refer to it as a sort of freedom to seek the truth by reasoning with other people. So it's a kind of complex, but I think fundamental right. Um, it embraces uh, a freedom of thought uh, component because as an individual you need to be able to think freely uh, and also a capacity to, to reason as an individual. But it also involves uh, the freedom of communication, that you communicate, you say things to people, they say things back to you and so on. But in addition, a kind of capacity to discuss things. So it's, a, it's an interpersonal, if you like, or social kind of uh, phenomenon. So it's not simply you as an individual saying things, it's you as an individual thinking things and reasoning about what you're thinking about, but it's also uh, individuals gathering together and uh, communicating and discussing things. So there's a kind of deliberative dimension to it, a kind of collective deliberative dimension to it that's important. Um, and moreover, if we're talking about political communication in the current environment, the pretty crudely mass society, albeit one with, with these new, uh, with the internet and with social media and these other um, enablers of public communication, um, it's to some extent both directly and it nevertheless is some, to some extent directly and indirectly uh, exercised, as, as has been the case for some uh, for, well, for hundreds of years via elected uh, leaders. So I'm going to put this on the table, this notion of freely seeking the truth by reasoning with others, and I'm going to suggest that it's not so much an individual right as a joint right. It's a right that I have and you have, but you have and I have interdependently with one another. And it's a right that involves reasoning, not only formal inductive and deductive reasoning, but informal reasoning. Um, and of course, it's... Uh, a right that uh, is governed by uh, epistemic and moral norms, tell the truth, respect evidence, uh, and so on and so forth. So if you think about um, the sort of thing I have in mind, at least, um, and I'm not suggesting that this has been an ideal process in this case, the sort of thing I'm, I have in mind is um, the collective decision um, on the basis of reasoning with others, a whole lot of people got together and reasoned with their friends, but they also uh, listened to what uh, elected leaders and various other people had to say. Um, there was, as it were, a collective political conversation which is ongoing uh, in relation to Brexit. So that seems to me to be an example of the sort of phenomenon I've got in question. It's a lot of people thinking about an important matter, they've got different viewpoints, they're operating directly with one another, but they're also operating indirectly via uh, as it were, thought leaders and political leaders and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of political conversation going on in relation to this issue and at the end of that conversation um, decisions are made uh, via an election or potentially via another referendum or potentially um, simply via uh, Parliament or, or perhaps via the Prime Minister without the help of Parliament um, depending on how things go. Now I'm not suggesting um, at all that that process has been uh, an ideal one. What I'm suggesting to you is that's the kind of process I've got in mind and it's kind of useful process to think about what has gone right and what has gone wrong in that process. Uh, you know, to what extent have people been telling the truth? To what extent has there been evidence? To what extent has there been uh, manipulative outside influence? Um, and so on and so forth. To, to, um, so it's, it's, the, it's the kind of process that comes, even, even if in that instance it's been extremely imperfect, that comes under what I'm under the heading of uh, uh, freely seeking the truth uh, by reasoning with other people. The truth in this case, of course, isn't so much a particular factual truth as opposed to a policy or course of action that um, is believed to be the best course of action uh, you know, for the country. Okay, so often when you make these sorts of points about 
look, you know, we've got to think through the importance of reasoning, giving everyone a say, um, let's respect the truth, let's look at the evidence. You get a whole lot of people sort of saying, oh, you know, the, 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 the cynical and the, um, the people who really know how it all works, the marketing experts and so on, um, saying, oh, well, you know, it's really all propaganda and uh, there isn't really a distinction between propaganda on the one hand and knowledge acquisition dissemination and serious rational deliberation on the other. It's, uh, it's just a sort of, it's, it's just all a kind of grand marketing exercise and there's just some people more powerful than others, so on and so forth. I think it's very important to maintain this distinction and secondly, I think it's very important to realise that actually far from there not being a distinction, the propagandists and the, the spreaders of, of um, the fake news and so on are actually parasites. Uh, they're parasites on the fundamental, more fundamental process, which is actually bona fide uh, communication, trying to respect the truth, trying to look at the evidence and so on and so forth. And they're parasites in the, in the, in the, in, in the literal sense that a parasite wants to feed off uh, the host but it doesn't want the host to die because once the host dies, they can't extract anything from the host. And so what's actually going on with, with propaganda and hate speech and all this other stuff, if everyone was lying uh, and everyone was simply manipulating everyone else and everyone realised this, then the whole, the whole communicative enterprise would simply collapse. No one would bother communicating with anyone. Uh, no one, you wouldn't be able to manipulate anyone because everyone would know they're manipulating itself. So the... The manipulators and the propagandists and the spreaders of fake news are actually, para are actually parasites in the sense they rely uh, on, uh, on others to actually comply with the epistemic and moral norms. Okay, so finally part D, where we come to um, uh, the suggestion. This should be rather quick, it's the solution. Well, it's it's not really a solution, but it's some suggestions. Uh, the, I've done I've done too much work to set up the the, the difficulty of this problem. I've suddenly realised now now I don't have the answer. I should have given myself an easier task. Um, okay, so first, let's let's look at what some of the possible things are being done in response to this. Well, one of the things I think can be done, which might sound rather silly and obvious, but is to address some of the legitimate grievances that are being exploited by the propagandists. I mean, if there is actually is a problem, there's a lot of people who are extremely poor or deprived or downtrodden, might be an idea to do something about it because then you would rob the propagandists of some of their uh, firepower. Another thing that has to happen, of course, is that we have to enact justified laws and regulations. To we have to think hard about which things ought to be prohibited and and which things ought not to be prohibited, and that's a, a complex um, process. Another kind of area, once we've got through that, uh, this is obviously, you'll see, schematic, I'm not going to do this for you in the time that I have, um, is that we need to look at issues around that are problematic in relation to enforcing laws and regulations. So, yeah, obviously, you're looking at removal of illegal propaganda, but there are a lot of uh, sophisticated new methods that can undermine that. Uh, for example, the, 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 the Russians in this Cambridge Analytica case. Um, some of these methods are not easy to counter, but a couple of things that you could be done. One is obviously to provide more adequate protection for personal information in the case of the Cambridge Analytica thing um, on the part of the um, Facebook and so on. Um, but another thing that you can look at is actually looking at offensive, uh, um, offensive cyber attacks on those nation states that want to be propagandist. Uh, this is uh, a very real possibility uh, and one that would, may need to be countenanced rather than just doing defensive measures. You may have to look at offensive measures of various kinds. Um, one suggestion that a lot of people have made is kind of counter-propaganda. Um, it would be one thing, of course, to have counter-narratives that are espousing liberal democratic values. I don't know how that, that's something that can be done. Counter-propaganda, of course, is, is you, you're now going for the business of spreading disinformation, um, telling a few lies, uh, and so on, in the manner that, um, for example, uh, uh, the UK did in the Second World War. 
this seems to me to be a really bad idea, and it's something that, of course, the marketing people can tell us all, we can do this, we can use machine learning, we can spout all this um, propaganda, which will be counter-propaganda. I think this is very problematic, particularly for liberal democracies who are committed to uh, evidence-based rational inquiry, open discussion, um, to go in for propaganda in this, in this way. It, which is not to say that the intelligence agencies don't need to spread a bit of disinformation um, as it were secretly. But if you're talking about in the public space, I think this is highly problematic. And counter-propaganda um, may actually just be ultimately counterproductive and devalue the liberal democratic uh, currency. So I would recommend against that. Um, some of the things though you can do um, is, is work to um, restore or, 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 or strengthen um, epistemic norms in the citizenry uh, via various institutions, schools, universities, and try to maintain or strengthen the intellectual and moral health of epistemic institutions such as journalism and, and parliament. I mean, one of the things that seems pretty obvious is that you, if you want a, if you want a strong, robust, resilient epistemic institution, say the media, a lot of the, uh, and a lot of this is due to fellow countryman uh, Murdoch, um, if, you, if you're in the business of undermining these norms uh, within the journalistic uh, and media companies themselves, then obviously you're doing the work of, of your adversary for you. Uh, and similarly, if you've got a, a parliament that is so obsessed with the promoting its own, the self-interest of individuals or so obsessed with the interest of the party, of, its, of the political parties, that it, it can't actually um, get ahead with its deliberative uh, work on behalf of the, of the nation, so, which seems to be the case with the Republican Party in the US. And, um, and now, um, from what I can see from the outside, uh, is, seems to be a feature of the Conservative Party at the moment. I mean, obviously this is very unhelpful uh, because far from your epistemic institutions being a counterweight to these problems, they're sort of becoming part of the problem. Um, another kind of dimension to this is not simply to strengthen existing epistemic institutions, but to try to embed those inst epi epistemic institutions uh, in the in cyber, as it were, in cyberspace, um, and we think of think of um, uh, say a quality newspaper with its well-supported investigative journalist that is using, uh, working and operating in the cyber realm. Is uh, its, its material appears in, in, for example, in Facebook and so on. Um, but it also can can do things to hold accountable those who are responsible for that. Um, uh, for fake news, hate speech, and so on. So, embedding in cyber, in the cyber realm, uh, these epistemic institutions is, is another thing that can be done. Let me finally then turn just to social media platforms themselves. Um, this brings me uh, to the end of this uh, this talk. Um, the internet and social media platforms uh, it has been claimed have rendered traditional epistemic institutions redundant. Um, I think this has now been shown to be completely false. In fact, the reverse is the case. That actually, we need we need to strengthen uh, and uh, and extend uh, the traditional epistemic institutions, the universities, um, the, the, the free and independent press, and so on. Um, so it's it's proved to be a complete illusion that uh, they've been rendered redundant. Um, Secondly, it is quite clear that the tech companies themselves are, have failed to ad adequately self-regulate and ensure compliance with uh, epistemic and moral norms, and so we need to, to deal, uh, and partly because of their overriding commercial interests, various reasons for that. And so um, regulation um, is, uh, is, strong regulation is required. Um, There are a couple of different. Um, let me just come to the just come to the end of this. A um, couple of different general options here. Um, one is if the giant if giant tech companies are to remain market based companies, then obviously they have to be made to comply with principles of free and fair competition, and that would require downsizing them. For example, um, 
reversing past acquisitions in the case of Facebook, of Instagram and WhatsApp. Um, on the other hand, if we come to the view, which I think we probably do need to come to, um, and, and the view that the tech companies themselves, in a sense, espouse, that they're simply infrastructure providers, they're not actually, they're platforms, they're not actually publishers, they're just platforms for others to, then we need to ensure that that's exactly what they're doing. They're not actually facilitating particular publications, they're simply providing infrastructure. But the next thing that seems to follow is that it may be that we just ought to be, they ought to be transformed into public utilities uh, because public utilities um, will, will perform that role much more satisfactorily uh, arguably than the markets. <coughs> okay, um, you'll be pleased to know that this is the last slide. Um, the Certainly one of the things I don't think we can leave um, alone is the current situation where the tech, the tech giants are not legally liable for material um, for hate speech and, and so on that may appear on their platforms. Um, but simultaneously, somehow they're taking responsibility or there's now co-responsibility uh, for removing or regulating that. So, I mean, I don't think you can have it both ways. Either they're, uh, they're responsible for regulating it, in which case they better be held legally liable when they fail to regulate, or they're out of the business of, of, uh, of regulating. We don't have that, them making those decisions, but rather, say, an independent uh, entity. Um, so far, this is the final point, um, I've been distinguishing, I've, I've been talking largely in these last few minutes about um, regulation and, uh, and the law in relation to, um, to hate speech and, and, uh, and fake news and propaganda. And of course, the law and regulation can do and is a necessary condition for doing um, this work. But I think it, the final point would be that actually it's not going to be sufficient, as I pointed out earlier, and that means there has to be um, there has to be uh, a, a strong counterweight from outs from from um, from um, as it were social forces, if you like, other than than the law and regulation and the enforcement of law and regulation. And that, that means, to some extent, I think, um, attitudes of, of ordinary people and them taking a responsibility for their citizenry, but it also means um, enhanced or, or the return of professionalisation to a lot of the relevant uh, occupations in this space. Uh, professionalisation being something that is, to some extent, subject to regulation, but is very much a matter of, um, of an occupational group or of an organisation uh, taking a stand and um, uh, developing a kind of culture that is, is oppositional to um, non-compliance to, to epistemic and uh, um, moral norms. Thank you. Well, thank you very much.